open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you have a Bible from the welcome table, it's on page 895. We're going to be looking at, um, at verses 1 through 29 this morning. Kind of two stories that we're going to, we're going to look at together. Um, back on March 8th, we reached this pivot point of Mark's gospel with the confession of, uh, from Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus confirms Peter's confession uh, and then describes the picture of what it means for him to be the Messiah and what it means for anyone to be a disciple of the Messiah. And that picture includes his suffering and his death and his resurrection and the call for us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. That was the last thing we left with before um, the week of craziness that was COVID-19 uh, unraveling. And, and then we've had four months to put that into practice, right? What does it actually look like for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him in the midst of all of this? The first half of Mark, it's all about the amazement and the miracles, right? It's all about this question, who is Jesus? Everybody's kind of wondering and, 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 and asking this question. There's a mystery about it. And then you get to the pinnacle of, of, of uh, chapter eight, and, and Peter finally says, I know, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to suffer and die and raise from the grave. And Peter's like, nope, you're not. You're not the Messiah. Or not that you're not the Messiah, but that's not the, what the Messiah does, right? He's got his own idea. And so then we get to this second half, and we're going to see this um, this, this playing out of what the Messiah, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, what it actually means for him to be who he is, okay? And, um, and in the midst of this, the whole gospel is this idea that the kingdom of God has come, and it's been inaugurated in Christ himself, okay? And so there's, um, uh, there, there's parallels between the beginning of the first half of Mark's gospel in, in chapter one and the beginning of the second half of Mark's gospel in uh, chapter nine. In both chapter one and chapter nine, um, we, we're going to see uh, pictures of, of forerunners uh, of Christ um, as uh, pointing to Jesus as the Lord. In chapter one, it's John the Baptist. In chapter nine, it's Moses and Elijah. Okay. Um, both of, of the, the, the halves of the gospel include God speaking, both actually, both chapter one and chapter nine, include God speaking and declaring Jesus to be his beloved son. So you get a witness from a, from a forerunner, from a person claiming uh, truths about Jesus. Then you get confirmation from God himself agreeing with those things. And, and then both mention the, the coming of the kingdom. In, in chapter one, Jesus says that, that the, um, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news, right? And, and here we're going to see, um, he's going to tell his, his disciples that, that the, they will see the kingdom come in power. And so in our passage today, we're going to get this, this timely and much needed reminder of what the kingdom of God is all about and how the gospel helps us see the kingdom and believe that it continues to conquer and expand powerfully even in our lives today. I think one of the things that I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I struggle with, is it's easy for me to read scripture and look back and see um, just the authority of Christ in the days that he lived. 
And, and then um, I know that he rose and I know that he ascended and I know that now he sits at the father's right hand. And, um, and we're told in Romans 8 that he's interceding for us. Do you know Jesus is praying for you right now? That's hard to grasp, right? But, but really, honestly, it just kind of feels like we're just kind of left here to, to follow him. We have the instructions, but we're kind of on our own, right? And then we look forward to what's coming because we clearly don't like what's here. And we, we want desperately for all of it to end, right? And yet, in the midst, in the in-between, there's this call for us. If we're going to follow Jesus, what do we do? We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow him. And so how does that work? What, what does that look like for us? How do, we, how do we see the kingdom of God both here and coming? How do we see it expanding in our lives right now if Christ is seated at God's right hand and we're left here in the midst of uh, right now an unprecedented time in our, in our history, right? So it's a larger chunk of scripture. Uh, and so I, 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 I'm not going to read it all the way through at the beginning. We'll, we'll go through it here. But I want to pray for insight for us this morning. I want to pray um, for my own heart in this. And uh, it, it's been interesting to, to jump back into Mark, even, even for me, just thinking about where we've come from and, and coming off of James, where James is, is a lot of uh, uh, do this, don't do that kind of stuff. And now we're getting back into to a story, a narrative. And, and so um, one of the things I want to do this morning is not to try to, to rip the story out of the story and, and say, we need, this is how we live. This is how we, you know, these five steps or whatever to a better prayer life in Christ, right? We're going to talk about the transfiguration of Jesus. We just need to kind of sit in that for a minute because I'm pretty sure none of us can comprehend the magnitude of what actually happened. And so I want to, I want to do my best to try to help us think about that and put ourselves in there and, and be in this story so that we can see the glory of God. And maybe then that motivates our hearts to, to, uh, to endure and to continue to, to grow in our faith here while we see the world around us falling apart. So I want to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to hear from you. We pray that your spirit who uh, enabled Mark to write this uh, would give us the wisdom that we need to understand it so that we know Christ better and bring you glory, that it deepens our faith, that it strengthens our hearts and enables us, God, to truly take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to endure suffering together for the sake of Christ and the gospel, even as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, we're dismissed. <laughs>
there's a huge crash of thunder. I don't know if you guys could hear that on the computer. Um, although if you're living it, if you're in Menung right now, you heard it. But uh, so you know how we, we plan things and sometimes they don't go to our, our way, right? Um, we talked about this in James, right? The Lord willing kind of thing. I had planned to preach this message on March 18th, four months ago, four months ago. Did you know that 2020 is almost half over and everybody said, amen, right? It's not almost, it's over half over, just like that, four months. Um, I had some of these things written down. I just want to read this. This was Thursday, March 15th. This is from a, an Associated Press article as everything was just kind of developing, right? Everybody was like, what is this thing? It's, it's crazy. This is weird. All of this. So this is from an Associated Press article on Thursday, March 15th. It said the virus detected three months ago in China has produced crippling outbreaks in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, ignited global financial panic, and in the last week has seen dizzying developments erupt by the hour. European soccer leagues, American basketball and baseball games, school terms for millions of students, weddings, baptisms, funerals, nightlife, culture, high and low, all fell by the wayside with a swiftness that was becoming increasingly difficult to grasp. By the end of the week, the official designation of a global pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization. Countries started shutting down travel to and from. That Saturday alone, March 17th, I don't think I have the dates right. Yeah. So what? Because March March eighth was our last Sunday. So fourteenth, March fourteenth, Saturday. Okay. I want to be really accurate in my details here. Um, th that Saturday, March fourteenth, right? I don't know if you remember, but I sent out three emails that day. Started off in the morning like, "Hey, we're still planning on meeting tomorrow." And then about noon, it was like, we might not be able to meet tomorrow. And then by the evening, it was like, we're not going to meet tomorrow. Right? This is the rapid pace that everything was happening. Like, nobody knew what was going on or what to do. Um, and at that point, just, just by that Saturday, there were over 125,000 cases globally. Now, four months later, we're over 14 million confirmed cases and pushing almost 600,000 deaths worldwide that are attributed to COVID-19. Now, I'm not here to argue numbers or statistics, right? You, you, can, you can, statistics are statistics. Um, but something I think that we can all agree on is that this tiny little microscopic organism has disrupted everybody's life, right? All over the world, across the planet in a multitude of ways. And on top of that then, you add the rapidly growing hostility uh, and polarization across racial and political and even church lines uh, in America, especially. And it's easy to wonder if God's even paying attention, let alone doing something about all of this. Like, where is the Christ that we read about in, in uh, Mark? I was just kind of hanging out, waiting for the God to say, okay, go. But God is doing something. God is doing something in all this. He's helping our unbelief. See, I don't, we've, we've talked about this before. None of us has perfect faith. And guess what? You won't until the day Jesus returns. 
but he does expect our faith to be growing and it actually can the more we keep him in view and the more we understand who he is the more we'll grow in our dependence on him so we're going to see these kinds of things today sometimes i, I think that we have more faith in sin's dominion and ability to destroy we see the curse of sin we see we see the the fruit of sin itself in creation and, and in each other and it, sometimes we have more faith in sin's dominion and ability to destroy than we do in christ's dominion and ability to restore we look at our world around us and we see it going down instead of uh and it's easy for us to think, well, we're, we're just going to go down with it. I don't know. I just, I feel like the brokenness of creation. I feel like, I feel like the, um, the display of our sinful nature is more amplified right now. Uh, it feels like than, than any time I can remember. There's just so much hostility, so much rage, pandemic ravages and, and, and people rage at one another and we're left wearied and, and disheartened and feeling like it's all beyond our control. And guess what? It is, right? That's the whole point. And as believers in Christ, it's good for us to remember that we're not in control because it, it forces us to look outside ourselves. And as believers in Christ, we're reminded that we need to look not just out to the world for hope, but we look to Christ himself for hope. We need to be reminded who he is so that we can confess our lack of faith and humbly ask him for, for help. And so we're going to see that this morning in our passage. We're going to see Christ in, his, in the fullness of his glory. We're going to see the disciples, the, the three, uh, Peter, James, and John, basically deny what they saw. And then we're going to see the reality of the brokenness around them continue but we're going to get glimpses of, of hope in what Christ does and says. And so we need to focus our attention today on what's going on here. I just want to give us a little context refresher. Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. Chapter 8, uh, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man after Peter says, you're the Messiah, and he says that it's necessary for him to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. But he also says I'm, that it's necessary for him to rise after three days. Nobody hears that one, that part, right? Peter says, no way, you, that, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. So then uh, after Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says, Peter, you're thinking about human concerns, not God's concerns. And then Jesus tells his disciples and the, and the crowd with him that if anyone wants to follow after him, what do they have to do? They have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. In other words, they need to join him in the suffering and death. Who's with me? Right? It's not a real great battle cry. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because they're expecting this Messiah to be this military might, this, this king who defeats the nations and reestablishes Israel's throne forever. But Jesus hints that the might of the kingdom is not an earthly one, in this last verse of chapter 8, Mark 8, 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so now, with that context in mind, there's a greater kingdom involved here, right? 
We're going to pick up in chapter 9, and Jesus is still standing there with his disciples in the crowd. So we've kind of left it hanging for four months. Uh, but this, he's going to finish up this conversation with them in, in chapter 1, of, uh, or in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. Everything in these first eight verses is designed to just shoot our attention straight to Christ. Right? Put his glory as the central thing in our view. He had just mentioned that the time was coming that the son of man would come in glory with his father or in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And, and now he's saying that, that there's some standing there, even as, as they're standing there among the crowd. Some of you guys aren't even going to die before you see this happen. And then the next thing that Mark writes about is six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain to pray. Mark doesn't say they go up to pray, but Luke does. All throughout scripture, mountains serve as this place. And we've seen this before in Mark already. They serve as this place where God reveals himself to humanity. And while they're up there, those three disciples would see God revealed in all his glory. Jesus would fulfill what he just said six days earlier as they were wrapping up things with the crowd. Now, transfigured literally means changed in form. Okay, So that doesn't mean that Jesus changed shape. And it doesn't mean that he was suddenly no longer a human. Instead, what it means is that his, all of his divine, radiant glory that was veiled in his humanity is now revealed. The man that these guys have been following, who stopped the wind in the waves, and they go, who is this? He's a man. This is a man in the boat with us. The man that they've been following, the man that they went up the, the, the mountain with, Suddenly he's glowing, he's, he's resplendent. The glory of God is on full display. When Moses went up on the mountain and he saw the glory of God, he came down and his face was glowing. You remember that? But Jesus' face isn't being illuminated from the outside here. Moses' face was reflecting the glory of God that he saw. Jesus' face is, uh, is emanating the glory of God from the inside. He's not reflecting the radiant glory of God. He is the radiant glory of God. Now, just, just try to imagine what's happening here. Just for a second, like... Let's just put ourselves in, in Peter's sandals. You, you've, you've seen Jesus cast out demons. Again, he's a man. He's got a lot of crazy powers, right? He's clearly from God. 
but he still looks like a dude. And you've been following him around and, and you've seen him cast out demons. You've seen him heal the sick. You've seen him um, raise the dead even, and, and you've seen him control the forces of nature, but he's always looked like this ordinary man. You're convinced he's the Messiah. You said it already, but you think that that means that he's the man that's anointed by God to be, the, to be Israel's conquering political military king. He's a man, he's a man, he's a man, right? And then he says, hey, let's go up on this mountain, let's pray. And suddenly, like you're up there praying with Jesus, this, this teacher, this rabbi that you've been following, this man, suddenly starts glowing. He starts glowing. His clothes are casting brilliant beams of light. Now, I'm lost right there, right? I mean, I can't even imagine this. No, nobody can. We can't, we can't grasp what's going on here. They're wider. So Mark tries to describe it. They're wider than anybody's ever gotten clothes white. Nobody can, like, oxyclean, nope. Tide, nope, right? No human could make this happen. That's what he's saying. And if that's not dazzling enough, suddenly you do a head count and you realize that there's two more guys standing there with you than came up the mountain. And not only are there two more people, but they're, um, they're, they're towering figures of the Old Testament. You've read about these guys. This is Moses and Elijah. They're not just any two men. They are major figures in Israel's history who lived hundreds of years ago, and they're standing there with Jesus talking to him like they've They've just known him for years, right? And you're completely dumbfounded and you feel like you, you should say something, but what do you say to this? And I love this uh, commentary that Mark adds in verse six. And we've talked about this before, but many scholars believe that, that Peter was heavily uh, influenced or, or was a heavy, uh, heavy influence on Mark in the writing of his gospel. You could basically say this is Peter's gospel in a sense. Um, and so this is one of those verses that leads them to believe that. Can't you just hear Peter retelling this story to Mark and coming to this point? And he's like, uh, yeah, I don't know why I thought building tents for these guys was the right thing to do. Um, I was scared out of my mind. That was the first thing I could think of. Okay. Um, and so let's keep going. Let's, let's put ourselves back in Peter's sandals. Jesus is standing there. He's glowing. He's talking with Moses and Elijah, and you're trying to figure out why you thought tents were a good idea. And then suddenly, in the midst of all of that, you look around and there's this dense fog of cloud that envelops you. And it overshadows you and everybody else there. And not only that, then this voice comes from the cloud. And it says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him listen to him and after that everything disappears and you're left standing there with jesus james and john and you're going what just happened what just happened now listen we have no category for this we can read about it we know it's true the bible doesn't lie to us but we cannot fully grasp the magnitude of what happened here um I've become a little bit of a space nerd in uh, trying to find things to do over the last four months. And this past week, we borrowed my dad's telescope and we, we, we looked out, we went outside the other night and we looked at Jupiter 
and saw four of its moons and uh, saw the lines in it of gas. Um, we looked at Saturn and we saw its rings. We tried to see the comet, but it wasn't uh, available at that point for the kids to see, but Brie and I went out a couple days before and saw it. These are, these are, listen, billions and billions and billions of stars, planets, things that God spoke into being and is holding in place, things that are reflecting the glory, the light of the sun. They don't hold a candle to what just happened here. That glory is incomparable. And yet when I look through the telescope, I don't have any words. I'm dumbfounded. I'm not going to try and build a tent for Saturn. But I, I don't have a category for this. They saw the one who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scripture. Jesus, the one who is the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah are not the showstoppers here. They're in submission here to Jesus. Jesus is the center of attention. The voice that came from the cloud is the voice of God the Father himself. He said nothing about Moses and Elijah. He gave his approval to the Son, and he commanded the disciples to listen to him. Why? Because they haven't been. Jesus says, I am going to die. Peter says, no, you're not. Listen to him. Hebrews 1.3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How, how is he going to make purification for sins? Through his suffering and his death, right? And then his resurrection, just as he said he would. He spoke openly about this with the disciples, but they didn't listen to him. Peter actually rebuked him for saying those things. Imagine Peter rebuking Jesus for saying something ridiculous. I should build some tents for you. Now Peter is the one saying ridiculous things, and he's being told, along with James and John, by God himself to listen to what Jesus has to say. So what's the first thing Jesus said after all this happened? Look at verse 9. They start coming back down the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them, Jesus, ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept, his, uh, they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it was written about him. Now Jesus orders them to wait to tell anyone uh, what they saw until after the Son of Man rises from the dead. And now they're even more confused, right? Even though Jesus had already told them openly that he must suffer and die and rise again after three days, they're still trying to figure out what he means by this rising from the dead. They know of the resurrection to come of all mankind, the day of the Lord, but they don't really have a category for like three days later after somebody dies. Their understanding of who the Son of Man is comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 comes in a vision from Daniel and he says, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly 
one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, that doesn't sound like the same son of man that Jesus is talking about here, right? If I'm Peter, this is what I'm thinking. How can he have an everlasting dominion that will not pass away if he passes away, if he's dead? And so Peter, James, and John redirect the question uh, with a question in verse 11, but they don't ask it because they don't know the answer. This is not a, a matter of ignorance here. They ask it in a subtle way to make a point. This is a, this is a back and forth that's happening here. In the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, said that God would send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, this resurrection of all people at the end where everyone will be judged. He would send Elijah before that day to restore righteousness and turn the hearts of the people back toward God and to one another. Now they just saw Elijah and they just saw Moses up on the mountain with Jesus. And Jesus keeps talking about the need for, for the son of man to suffer and die. And so by asking the question about Elijah, the three disciples are, are making the point that suffering and death is unnecessary because Elijah's here, right? And, and he's going to restore all things. They're basically saying, listen, I know you told us that we need to take up our cross, deny ourselves, follow you. That's not really necessary, right? Because Elijah's here. But Jesus knows where they're going because he always knows. And he answers their question and then he counters it with one of his own. He says, Elijah does come first. You're right. And he does restore all things. And then he questions um, why they're ignoring the scriptures that say that it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Now, he's referring to Isaiah 53 there. If you've never read that, I encourage you to do that this week. It's this suffering servant, and Jesus is tying this servant who suffers with the Son of Man who comes in power and might in Daniel 7. And then he says Elijah has come, but he's not just ta he's not talking about the the uh, the actual Elijah that they just interacted with on the mountain. Jesus makes it clear in uh, several of the Gospels that uh, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. John the Baptist is the one that that Malachi was prophesying uh, prophesying about. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says uh, that, that this is this is true. John, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. And Mark alludes to it at the beginning of the, of the gospel, the very opening of the gospel. He quotes Malachi, right? You remember that? And then immediately after that, he says, John the Baptist came in the wilderness, preparing this way for the Lord. So he talks about John the Baptist and his ministry. Jesus says that Elijah has come and that they did whatever they pleased to him. What did they do to John the Baptist? Remember? They killed him. They arrested him. He was beheaded. The same way that Elijah suffered at the hands of King Ahab and, and Jezebel, John the Baptist suffered at the hands of Herod and Herodias. And Jesus is making the point that, listen, if John suffered and John died, even though he was the long-awaited Elijah who restored the hearts of God's people by calling them to faith and repentance, should it be surprising that the long-awaited Messiah should also suffer? and die as it's written about him and if the messiah isn't exempt from suffering and death death then neither are those who follow him 
See, the whole point is that these disciples don't want to admit that Jesus is right. And that the way to glory, the way to restoration is through suffering and death. They don't want to believe it. They don't want, to suffer. They don't want the Messiah to suffer and die because they don't want to suffer and die. They want to win. They want to conquer. They want to rule with the king, not suffer with him. But then they come back down the mountain and they meet up with the rest of the disciples and it doesn't take long for the reality to set back in. Mountain high, no longer. Here we go into the re back into the real world. There's still opposition to this kingdom that they can't overcome. Look at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd with them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So Jesus comes up uh, with, with Peter, James, and John, and they, they see the rest of the disciples standing there. Crowd is surrounding him. The disciples are arguing with uh, some scribes that had come probably to argue with Jesus, but they couldn't find him. So the disciples are the next best thing, right? And then the crowd turns to see Jesus approaching. They realize that the miracle man has arrived. They know the story that's going on. So they run to meet him. And Jesus then asks the disciples first, hey, what are you guys arguing about? But in the midst of that, before they can answer him, this man from the crowd jumps out and says, listen, here's what's going on. My son has been... Um, possessed by this demon for forever and, it, and it, uh, it keeps him from speaking it throws him into seizures all the time and I came looking for you but you weren't here and I saw your disciples so I asked them to cast it out and they couldn't do it now if you remember from chapter 6 Jesus sent the 12 out in pairs and gave them the authority over unclean spirits and the 12 went out and they preached that people should repent and they drove out many demons and they anointed many people who were sick and they healed them. They, they could do this. So why couldn't they drive out the demon from this man's son? Well, Jesus is going to answer that question for him in a minute. But, but first he replies to the crowd and then he has this, this really important conversation with the father. So let's look at what he says in verse 19. He replied to them, he's talking to the crowd, you unbelieving generation. How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. And this, when the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Now, uh, uh, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said, and many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. Jesus' lament over the crowd's unbelief echoes that of the prophets of the Old Testament who were grieved over the unbelief of and disobedience of God's people. Jesus is grieved that they can't see past his ability to do miracles and actually see him for who he is, understand his true identity. But he doesn't just throw up his hands and storm off. 
The boy needs help and so does the father. This demon's been exerting its control over the boy for years and it's tried to kill him many times, but it's never succeeded. And when the demon sees Jesus, it immediately throws the boy to the ground into another seizure. Now at this point, the father's weariness and desperation is apparent, right? He, he came looking for Jesus, but only found the disciples. Can you imagine the disappointment of that? Like he should be with these guys. Where's he at? And they couldn't do it. They couldn't cast out the demon. So now he's wondering, even if Jesus is here, can he even do it? And even in the midst of that, the demon throws his son down again into another seizure. The, the father's almost resigned to believe that his son will never be free from this affliction. He's grown accustomed to the destruction as the norm. Do you feel that? COVID-19 has given us a new normal. We don't know what that is yet. But clearly we don't think it's what was before. And even what was before wasn't without its destruction and evidence of, of brokenness. So in the midst of this, he half-heartedly asked Jesus for help. He says, listen, if you can do anything, can you please have compassion on us? Help us? Can you, can you just fix this? But Jesus' reply gets to the heart of the issue here. What the disciples were unable to do, Jesus is able to do. Think through Mark for a second. The first half of the, of the gospel. How many times has Jesus gone to cast out a demon and it didn't work? Zero. He says it's, what's impossible for man is, is possible for God. As readers of this, we should be catching on here. Reminding, being reminded that even though we can't picture ultimately that scene on the mountain, we can trust that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is God. The issue here is faith. The man has faith, but it's small, like a mustard seed. He immediately recognizes that he needs help with something far more pressing than his demon-possessed son as soon as those words come out of Jesus' mouth. My greater need is to believe here. So immediately, he cries out to Christ. Not saying, please, please help my son. What does he say? I do believe. I do believe. I need help with my unbelief. And the very act of crying out to Jesus for help with his unbelief shows that the man believes that Jesus can actually help him. Even in the plea, his faith was already being strengthened. One commentator put it this way, true faith takes no confidence in itself. You know, we say a lot, I, have, I still have my faith. I don't want my faith. It's weak. It's frail. It's mixed with unbelief. I need greater faith, and so do you. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. Praise God for that. It looks to the more powerful one, Mark 1, 7, who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all, to the contrary, that Jesus is able. I do believe. Help my unbelief.
In the act of saying that, that man's faith was strengthened. Jesus responds then to this man's faith. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions, and the boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up, and after he'd gone out, gone after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus doesn't want to make a spectacle of the situation. He doesn't want to give people even more reason to keep seeking miracles or to try to take him by force and make him king, right? He's not waiting for the crowd to gather so that he can display his might. He took three men up the mountain to show them who he truly was. He's not about the fame here. But he does display his authority and, the, and his power right there for the Father to see. He rebukes the demon. That's an authoritative action. He commands the demon to come out. Who can command the demons? Only God. He shows his authority and power to the Father here. Rebukes the demon to leave and, and uh, commands it to leave and, and never come back. And then the demon immediately obeys, but, but because it's evil and wicked, it throws a tantrum one last time, right? Trying to feign its own authority and power. Throws the boy into convulsions and leaves him laying on the ground like a corpse so that many people in the crowd believe he's dead. Now, if you're the father and you just realize that, that what you need is greater faith, and so you, you, you surrender even more. You confess even more. Jesus, I need your help. Help me. And he does, and your boy ends up dead. And all you wanted for, was for the demon to leave. That feels like a step backwards, doesn't it? This is what I get for my faith? But it doesn't end there because Jesus takes the boy by the hand and he raises him up the literal interpretation of verse 27 there says that jesus raised him and he was resurrected i love that because as a reader it reminds me of what jesus was talking about back in chapter 8 listen it's necessary for me to suffer and die but hear this it's necessary for me to rise three days later Just before this, Peter, James, and John asked what it means to be raised from the dead. Why, why do you even need to do that? Elijah's here, right? Now Jesus is giving him an object lesson that points to the necessity and the, the significance. Listen, the suffering and the death, that's on purpose. That's necessary because it's actually the thing that brings restoration. It may feel like you're going backwards, the more you open yourself up to Christ in faith, it may feel like greater and greater pressure is coming in. You're just letting all of that flood in as much as you want only Christ to come in. But it has a purpose. 
because it's necessary for restoration to take place. The reason that we're called to die to ourselves is because we can't really live unless we do it. We follow Christ. And, and Mark closes this scene with Jesus talking privately with the disciples in the house and, and explains to them why they couldn't drive out the, the demon from the boy. Well, why can't we do this one? We've done all these other ones. Why, why can't we do this one? He says, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Now, it's not that this was a special kind of demon that was more powerful than the others. Most likely, the point Jesus is making here is that the authority of the disciples over any demon, over any spiritual force, is granted to them only through faith. And what is faith? It's a dependence and a confidence in who Christ is and what he's able to do. Faith leads to greater dependence, and dependence leads to prayer. Prayer is the expression of faith that recognizes that all spiritual power and authority that I've been given is not coming from me. It's found in Christ alone. So how do we take this and, and put it into our lives right now? We struggle with the call to surrender our lives. We struggle with the call to suffer with Christ and believe that restoration is actually taking place and that God's kingdom is advancing even now in the midst of all the chaos and destruction, right? It's so overwhelming sometimes to just like, it's, it'd be one thing if it was just like coronavirus, but then you throw uh, racial tension in there, you throw political tension in there, you throw all kinds of, I mean, just then personal things, lost a job, my basement's flooded, whatever, right? It's just like this deluge of, of the effects of sin, the curse, let alone just the depravity of my own heart and, and the depressing state that that can leave me in, where you just feel like you failed again and again and again. But we need to understand, we live on this side of the resurrection, we are not, we don't have to, to go back with the disciples right there and wonder what actually Jesus is talking about. We know, right? He actually did what he said he would do. He suffered and he died and he rose from the grave. And now he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God in power. He's going to return in power from on high with the holy angels. The one who suffered is now the one who conquered. So we can suffer. We talked about this in James. We can endure suffering because of the hope that we have. Because the faith that God has given us to believe that Jesus is who he is and he does what he says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If any of you wants to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. We're on the other side of the resurrection, but I think sometimes we forget the significance of it. Especially when things are just happening to us at a rate that we can't handle. But again, going back to what James said, God is sovereign and he's good. And in his sovereignty and goodness, this is the plan. This is the way to restoration. Jesus led the way through his own life, death, and resurrection. And we follow the way through our 
dying with Christ and being raised with him. And it's not our power to do that. It's his power that works mightily in us. The immeasurable working of his mighty power. So that we know that we know that we know to greater and greater degrees that Christ is able and willing to help and he will fulfill his promise to us. So, as believers who are enduring whatever this world is going to do, we can do it knowing that Christ is firmly in control, that he is interceding on our behalf, and that he's given us a role to play in this kingdom expansion. So we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day because we need it every single day. You know how we overcome our unbelief? Fix our eyes on Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And we take that gospel out. That's the authority we've been given, right? The Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Preach the good news. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And guess what? Even though I'm sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf, I'm with you always to the end of the age when the final resurrection actually takes place and the king comes in power and all of this is transfigured and changed in the twinkling of an eye. This is our hope. So as we continue to read Mark's gospel and we see this progressing, let's read this and let it enliven us Let's let it stir in our hearts a greater faith to know Christ, to fellowship with him in his resurrection and in his suffering, and to know that it's on purpose. And that in that suffering, Christ's glory is revealed more and more to us and to those around us. Amen. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ is gloriously reigning and we thank you, God, that though we can't grasp what happened on that mountain, that one day we will see in full the resplendent glory of Jesus. And we, who are being transformed, who are being transfigured into his image from one degree of glory to the next until that day comes, we too will be glorified when that day comes. And so, Lord, we confess our unbelief. And we ask for help. And we pray that you would help us to behold the glory of Christ through the gospel each and every day. And that that would motivate us to take that glory and, and show it to others by the way we live and what we say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.